0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: In modern-day Florida, Ava Trobe, an elderly librarian, catches sight of an image in a newspaper of a book she hasn't seen in 65 years.
3: It's Saturday morning, and I'm midway through my shift at the Winter Park Public Library when I see it. The book I last laid eyes on more than six decades ago. The book I believed had vanished forever. The book that meant everything to me. It's staring out at me from a photograph in the New York Times which someone has left open on the return's desk. The world goes silent as I reach for the newspaper, my hand trembling nearly as much as it did the last time I held the book. It can't be, I whisper.
2: For Ava, the rediscovery of the book triggers old memories of her heroic wartime services, forging identity documents for Jewish children fleeing from the Nazis to neutral Switzerland. I'm Rob Weinberg, and in this edition of Historical Fiction, I talk to author Kristen Harmel about her evocative new novel, The Book of Lost Names, inspired by an astonishing true story from World War II, a testament to the resilience of the human spirit and the power of bravery and love in the face of evil.
3: This is historical fiction.
2: Kristen, thank you for joining us. Tell us about The Book of Lost Names.
1: So The Book of Lost Names opens in 2005 with an 85-year-old French-American librarian named Ava Trobe-Abrams, who's shelving books one morning when she spots on a page of The New York Times a photograph of a book she has not seen in more than 60 years, a book that means everything to her, a book that was looted by the Nazis in the waning days of World War II. So the book is in Berlin now and Providence researchers are trying to figure out who it belongs to and what the secret code written on its pages means. So then as Ava travels to Berlin to reunite with the book in 2005, her story also is unfolding in the past, starting in July of 1942 during the Valdiv roundup of more than 13,000 Jews in Paris. So Ava and her mother, who is from Poland, managed to escape to an isolated town in the unoccupied zone where Ava becomes part of a document forgery network. She's especially moved by the plight of the children the network is helping to escape to Switzerland. And uh, she becomes sort of desperate to preserve the real identities of the children whose names she's changing. She worries about them being sort of erased. So she, along with a clever, charming forger named Remy, begins recording their names and code in a 1732 religious text that they refer to as the Book of Lost Names, hence the title of the book. Uh, But then the resistance cell is blown and Remy vanishes. And when the book disappears, too, Ava fears she has lost everything, perhaps including even Remy's last critical message to her.
2: How did you get the inspiration for the novel? Was it based on a true story that you actually came across? It
1: is not directly based on one true story, but it's based largely on both the story of looted books during the war, which is sort of the framework of the novel, and the story of document forgers in France, plus, of course, the real-life resistance networks that helped people cross the borders to freedom. So there are fascinating stories in particular about forgers such as Oscar Wazowski, who helped more than 3,500 people escape and Adolfo Kaminsky, who was part of a forgery network in Paris that helped save as many as 14,000 lives, which is pretty incredible when you think of it. Both were quite young when they began their forgery work during the war. I believe Rizowski was just 18 when he started in 1942, and Kaminsky was just in his early 20s. And they were both Jewish also, so they stumbled into forgery out of a need to forge their own documents. And when they realized they had a knack for it, they stayed. So in the book, Ava, the main character, is on much the same journey.
2: You go into quite a bit of detail about the forgery techniques. How did you research those and find out about them?
1: There are some wonderful books. Adolfo Kaminsky, A Forger's Life. The other's called A Good Place to Hide, and that's by Peter Gross. Those were probably the two I used most heavily. This is also the fourth novel I've written set in World War II France. Behind me, as we talk right now, I'm sitting at my desk and I have a whole shelf that just runs the length of the wall. It's all books about World War II France. So I've just done a ton of research, but those books in particular were really helpful because they had some really specific and just wonderful information about exactly how these forgeries were done.
2: A lot has been written about Nazi loot, especially in relation to works of art. But as you say, The Book of Lost Names, which in itself is a precious antiquarian book that turns up 60 years after the war. What's the story related to looted books? Is that a thing that people are concerned about and trying to find the real owners of?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's incredible. So I had the idea for writing about the document Forgers first, because that was something I had stumbled upon while researching my previous book, The Winemaker's Wife, which deals with the resistance in the Champagne region of France. So I knew I wanted to write about document forgers, but the whole story wasn't entirely there until January of 2019, when my literary agent forwarded me an article from the New York Times that talked about the Nazi looting of books. And I thought, oh, there it is. Like, that's what I can use to frame the story. So there's actually a great book called The Book Thieves, The Nazi Looting of Europe's Libraries and the Race to Return a Literary Inheritance by Anders Rydell. So it's worth a read if that is interesting to anybody. But basically, provenance researchers say that most German libraries have at least some books that were looted you know, 75 years ago by the Nazis. And according to the New York Times, Berlin's Central and Regional Library has around a million looted books, which constitutes about a third of its collection, which is just, to me, mind-blowing. So it was often looted art that received the big headlines because a lot of those pieces were worth millions. But there were many, many, many books stolen too, millions and millions mostly from Jewish libraries and collections, but also from other groups such as the Masons, the Catholics, socialists, groups like that, that the Nazis considered enemies. So researchers and librarians in Germany and all around the world are working now to return those books. But given the sheer number of them and the amount of time that's passed, it's sort of a monumental task. And I thought one of the interesting things about this is sort of unlike a lot of the art that we read about that has been focused on, not all of the books are valuable in the monetary sense, but certainly most of them have sentimental value to the people or the families they were stolen from. And I think that that has been the experience of those working to return them. They're returning to the families pieces of the people they lost long ago in many cases.
2: Your main character in the book, Eva, has this very passionate relationship with books themselves. Is that autobiographical?
1: It is. So this is my 13th novel, and I'm obviously passionate about writing books. I've also been a reader for as long as I can remember. And I kind of feel, you know, especially during this sort of strange time in our world history... You know, books are so important. They can transport you to a different place. And a lot of us, you know, have spent some time stuck in our own homes. I I think books are sort of a window to the outside world. And more importantly, they can teach you something new and they can help you to look inside yourself. So books really mean everything. And it was a pleasure to finally write a book about a book and to some extent about the people who protect and love books.
2: You mentioned your previous novel, The Winemaker's Wife, which also deals with the French resistance and this notion of a hidden or a lost story from Second World War coming to light many decades later. What do you find so fascinating about the period in history?
1: Ah, oh, it's just such a fascinating period of time because it wasn't so far in the past that we can't identify with it. I think most of us reading today have parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents who were alive during the war and who have experiences and you know that they have either shared with us or on the other hand, perhaps haven't shared with us and we feel that those stories have been lost. So I think on a personal side, I, as well as I think readers sort of connect for that reason, two World War II stories. But I also think that there are so many stories from that war that just are not widely known yet. And I think we can all feel a connection to stories about ordinary people doing extraordinary things in dark times. So during that war in particular, you know a lot about the armies and all the the military maneuvers and everything like that that contributed to winning the war. But so much of the war was fought by just people on the ground standing up and saying, this isn't right. I want to make a difference. I want to stand up for my country. You know, and a lot of people turned their backs and didn't do that. But I think it's interesting to read about characters thrust into situations like that who were just ordinary people to start with, because you can ask yourself, you know, what would I have done in that situation? I think it's easy to identify with
2: Have you spoken to survivors of that period, people who were in the French resistance or who were helping Jewish children escape to Switzerland?
1: So to some extent, yes. So this is my um my fifth World War Two novel, my fourth World War Two set in France novel. And I've researched all of them. I lived in Paris for a little while myself. You know, I've done a lot of research for each of these books and a lot of it has been interviews and firsthand research. But I wanted to share that one of the things that sort of inspired me to go down this path to begin with was an experience I had in my previous job, which was writing for a magazine called People Magazine, which is a huge magazine in the United States. It's a big celebrity magazine. And so my 2012 novel was called The Sweetness of Forgetting. And it deals with partially the Holocaust in France during World War II. So one of the people I interviewed for People Magazine, people always think my favorite interview must have been a celebrity, and it wasn't. It was this man named Henry Landworth. So he was in a concentration camp from age 13 to 18, and he lost both of his parents. He came to the United States in 1950 with just $20 in his pocket, worked his way up from the kitchen of a hotel to being the front desk manager, and then he moved to Cocoa Beach to manage a hotel there. It, it wound up being the hotel where the astronauts and journalists were all staying at the dawn of the space program. And so he wound up becoming lifelong friends with Walter Cronkite and John Glenn, who were you know both staying at his hotel at the time. So the three of them went into the hotel business together. They made millions. And in 1986, he took his millions and founded an organization for kids with cancer called Give Kids the World with the idea of giving childhood back to the children who were having their childhood stolen from them in much the way his childhood was stolen. So one of the things that really struck me and stayed with me, and I think has informed every character I've written during this time period, was that Henry said that in order to survive the concentration camp he was in, he had to learn how to turn off his emotions. And when the war was over, he never quite knew how to turn them back on again. So it made me really think long and hard about the lifelong psychological effects of something like that. And not just necessarily people in concentration camps, but people went through you know, horrible things all across the world during World War II. And I think particularly that generation might not have opened up about those things. I mean, that wasn't really necessarily a generation that sought out therapy or gave voice to their fears and and all the things that were inside of them. So, yeah, I think that beginning with that, that has become a big part of, of everything I write.
2: Another theme which struck me in the book is the kindness shown to Eva, who's Jewish, by the local Catholic priest, and indeed her falling for Remy, who's a Catholic resistance fighter, there's a sense in the book that when faced with life-or-death events, the apparent barriers between religions and cultures and traditions drop away.
3: The morning after Hanukkah ended, it was snowing when Eva arrived at the church, ducking inside and crossing herself at the entrance as she always did, just in case anyone was watching. It had become her routine to kneel in one of the pews for a minute or two before proceeding to the library to ensure that no one else was there. Sometimes there would be another person there, fingering rosary beads or staring at the cross on bended knee, and Eva would pretend to pray too until they were gone. Lately, though, Eva had found it a perfect place to talk silently to God. Was it a betrayal for a Jew to find God in a Catholic church? She wondered if somewhere out there her father was still speaking to him too, from behind a barbed wire fence in a desolate land.
2: Do you think there's resonance for the present day crisis in the world?
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, to go back again to The Sweetness of Forgetting, my 2012 book, I think one of the elements of that book that resonated most with people was one of the true stories that was in there, which was during the darkest days of World War II, Muslims from the Grand Mosque of Paris were working with Christians to help Jewish people escape Paris, which I think is just extraordinary. They actually saved as many as a thousand Jews. And the same was true in many places with Muslim populations around Europe, such as Albania. And certainly Christians were helping, too. So, you know, I think that during the darkest times, those barriers do drop away. And we remember that we're all just human. And it's interesting that you ask that because I read a great article in The Washington Post a few days ago that was about a hospital in Jerusalem treating coronavirus patients, and how it was talking about how hundreds of Jewish patients were being treated by Muslim doctors and nurses and vice versa. So the article quoted a Palestinian doctor who said something along the lines of, he was very proud of his Palestinian culture, but in here, we are all just humans. And I thought that just summed it up perfectly. I mean, you know, we get so caught up in these things that separate us, but in the end, we're all the same and we're we're walking this earth together and we're going through this journey together. And I don't think that's ever really something I intend to set out and say in my novels, but if you look back at most of my books, I think that is a theme that really continues to resonate and it's something I really strongly believe.
2: Can we talk a little bit about the craft of writing a novel? In both The Book of Lost Names and The Winemaker's Wife, you play with two time frames. You have the present-day elderly character who's revisiting their past, and then the events of the past itself. What's your process in constructing novels like these?
1: It's funny. I've had this conversation with other writers before, and there are kind of two ways to go about it. Some of my writer friends write the two stories completely separately. They write the present-day story, and they write the past story. And then they weave them together and figure out sort of where to insert the present day chapters within the narrative of the past. My process is different. This, I think, is actually my fifth novel that I've written with two time frames: a character in the present or, you know, relatively the present and a character in the past. And to me, both stories inform each other. They sort of play off each other, if that makes sense. And so I write them together from the beginning. I mean, I start on page one and just write through. And I would say that the only thing that winds up changing between the first draft and the final draft is I usually write too many chapters in the present and then have to eliminate some of them. I feel like I know more about the present day story. And I think part of that is me just trying to figure out who the characters are and how the past impacted and changed them. But once I sort of know that in my own head, I can condense and cut down because really for the most part, the interesting story is in the past and the The present-day story is just a lens through which we can understand it and understand how the the effects of the past continue to reverberate.
2: You mentioned you started your life as a journalist writing for celebrity magazines. How different is the process then of writing novels from writing an article, even a long-form article?
1: Well, the people I got to meet in my previous life were much more handsome. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I mean, it was like Matthew McConaughey and Ben Affleck and people that, you know, just weren't really that unfortunate to look at. I was like, OK, I'll, I can keep doing this. But no, I'm just joking. The, the biggest difference is word count. Um, so I wrote for many years for People Magazine, and especially during the end of my time there, the word counts were continuously getting shorter and shorter because they were sort of being influenced by the fact that, you know, online journalism was becoming a much bigger presence, particularly. Particularly online celebrity journalism. And so it was not unusual to be told toward the end of my time working for them that I had 150 words to tell a whole story. In a novel, I have about 100,000. <laughs> so word counts are very different. But to be honest, I think there was a lot of overlap between my old job and what I'm doing now. My favorite stories of people, you know, I, I joke about the celebrity stories, and I did do hundreds of celebrity interviews, and that was always a lot of fun. I got to go to the Super Bowl. I got to go to a lot of really cool things. But my favorite stories were always the ones about the ordinary people doing extraordinary things, and that's kind of what I write about now. So I I, I feel like it just that pushed me into this even though it was never a logical path and also having worked as a journalist for a long time i really developed an ability to interview people and kind of get stories out of them and an ear for how people talk you know i think that's something that if you're starting off writing novels that's something sometimes people struggle with a little bit everyone sounds the same in the dialogue but i think coming from a reporting background i've just been aware since day one that everybody sounds different
2: I was talking recently to another author who started life as a a journalist, and she said every journalist has a novel within them or has this kind of itch inside them to write a novel. Is that your experience as well?
1: For me, I've always wanted to write novels. I mean, since I was a kid, I've wanted to write novels. And journalism was something I went into because I felt like I didn't have the maturity yet to write a novel. Um, I started working as a journalist when I was 16. But, you know, I I think that for journalists, when you get used to telling a story in a way that moves people, which I think is something that, you know, most journalists do, or that's something that's just part of our lives, you start to think about how it could be different if you could shape the narrative yourself. And in journalism, obviously, you can't say, well, wouldn't it be better if these two people had reunited? And you can't just rewrite fact but you can do that in a novel you can say like what's actually better for the story so I think probably a lot of journalists do hope to do that and a lot of journalists become wonderful novelists one of my good friends I've been doing um, uh, some book tour things with via zoom um, is an author named Mary Kay Andrews who is kind of the queen of the summer she writes a lot of beach reads and she started off as a journalist and she's a phenomenally successful novelist so it's a skill set that transfers pretty easily I think.
2: Finally, what next for you? Is there another Second World War story that's grabbed your attention?
1: Yes, I can't seem to stop. So I've just begun writing my next novel, which deals in part with groups of Jewish refugees hiding in the forests of Eastern Europe. So inspired in part by groups such as the Bielski Ohtriad, the film Defiance, if anyone has seen it, which is a phenomenal film with uh, Daniel Craig and Liev Schreiber. The film Defiance is about them and there's a wonderful book called Defiance. But there were other groups in addition to theirs that were just smaller and less prominent that survived and fought back. So that's really fascinating to me and I'm just beginning the writing of that and that'll probably be out in 2021.
2: Kristen Harmel, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Historical Fiction
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.